from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show on how ordinary people or the undiscovered stars out there like you can actually become world-class leaders. This isn't a pipe dream or an infomercial. It's actual science and people analytics at that. Thanks to the extraordinary work of the CEO Genome Project, a collaboration between leadership advisors GH Smart and research from the University of Chicago, NYU, and SAS Incorporated, we have a new and unbelievably powerful understanding of the traits and behaviors that make a successful CEO. All actually learnable. This research provides powerful new insights into how you can tap into your unique strengths and grow into being a more successful and impactful leader, regardless of where you started. Our guest today, Elena Botella, senior partner at GH Smart and co-author of The CEO Next Door, The Four Behaviors That Transform Ordinary People into World-Class Leaders, is going to help us explore all of this, and in particular, the things you can do now to move that process forward. Our phones are open, as always, at one 844 or Wharton, 844-942-7866. And we really would love to take your questions and have you join the conversation. Are you aiming for the C-suite? Are you convinced you can't get there because of something in your background, something that happened in the past that's holding you back? Give us a call and we'll help talk with you about what you can do to move the whole thing forward. Once again, that's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Now, before I bring on my guest, I want to give you a little background on her because she's really amazing. Elena is the founder and co-leader of the CEO Genome Project. It's a research client practice providing guidance for new CEOs, and she's a partner at the leadership advisory firm GH Smart. Before she joined GH Smart, Elena was an associate partner at McKinsey, where she advised CEOs and senior executives of Fortune 500 companies. She's a member of McKinsey's M&A Integration Council, an invitation-only forum of senior executives from major corporations where they share best practices. And with a background that includes undergraduate studies in education, psychology, and a Wharton MBA, um, including a childhood in Moscow and Azerbaijan, Elena is herself an extraordinary woman at work, who I am delighted to welcome home to Wharton today. So, Elena, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me, Laura. So, there are so min- many women that we know who don't shoot for leadership roles because they don't think they resemble a CEO. Now, aside from the kind of gendered physical traits, we know we're not six foot four white men. Um, they still, we get a lot of messages that a CEO is actually you. Someone with multiple degrees from a competitive business school (laughs) who went into consulting. Um, So tell us, what should we try and see instead? What does a CEO look like to you? Well, so first I have to say it's really funny to hear you say, well, the CEO looks more like you. Because another way to do my bio would be to say, well, here's a short, introverted (laughs) Russian woman who knows nothing about sports, went to a second-tier undergraduate in Russia and then a third-tier in the States, and, like, what is she doing in the boardroom? <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's the, that's the version that often plays in my mind. But here we are. Uh, right, because here at Women at Work, we believe all those <laughs> things can be a CEO. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, so what did we learn about being a CEO? Um, when we first started the project, it was a pursuit of intellectual passion. Okay. And then as we uncovered some of the really shocking, surprising, surprising findings, more and more it actually became a passion of purpose as opposed to just the passion of intellect. And so 
basically where we started was, you know, as we and my colleagues um, spend a lot of time in the boardroom, and we're often asked to advise on who should become a CEO, quite literally. So we've got a search, or we're thinking about it, uh, several succession candidates. Who should be our next leader? And our firm has spent the last 20 years advising leading corporations and investors on that very subject. And what struck me time and again is that even in the best boardrooms, the most sophisticated decision makers sometimes just get it completely wrong. <laughs> and that when you and, and, and even in the best boardrooms in the world, you hear a conversation like, well, gee, yeah, Elena, I could see how you're saying the track record is really good, but you know he's really introverted, so I'm a little concerned how he's going to build followership. Or, well, you know, I'm really nervous about you know will she get on the road to travel because this ro- this role requires a lot of travel. And so, what our method allows us to bring to the table and then translate it into research is that we just looked at look at pure facts and pure data. And we look at histories of careers. And so when this topic of introverts or travel comes up, we're able to say, well, let's look at how they've done this in their 10 prior jobs and how well they've been followership. But that just felt insufficient. And so that's when we dug into our database of 17,000 assessments. Right. So let's just just pause there for a second. Because um, in what you're describing, we've talked before about hiring biases that we exhibit in the workplace are subconscious biases in decision making. You know, we're a big fan of Iris Bonet's work. And but you're talking about something that's really interesting to hear it played out, which is that in the conversation are biases that are sometimes informed by experience. Um, come out in front of us, and then we connect them with things that, and, and the way you described it, you can see how it impacts the decision. Exactly. It's rooted in a genuine interest in doing what's right for the company, but it's making a lot of assumptions. Exactly. Exactly. And then, glad to hear you said, let's get data, but you didn't just get data. What was that number? 17,000? Exactly. So the crazy thing is that we have the luxury of our firm accumulating 17,000 C-suite assessments. So when you talk about people data analytics, we had data. That's what we would call a ton of data. (laughs) That's a ton of data. And it's very unusual data because there's a lot of research out there on what makes a successful CEO. And it's often based on Fortune 500 CEOs, which is only 500 companies out of millions of companies that exist out there. So it's a very small set. And a lot of that by necessity, because those top CEOs are really busy people, is based on kind of, you know, I call it kind of skin deep profiles, right? Okay. People anal- analyze their rev- their resumes. The people analyze their uh, publicly available information. What we had was really special and unique because, again, the way we got this data is folks rely on us to interview and assess these executives for four or five hours straight in order to help them make a hiring decision. And so what you have for the first time um, is... 17,000 records of executive careers, basically some the most successful people in business. So how did you capture this? Did you have somebody transcribing the five-hour interviews? <laughs> did you record them? Um, it's a mixture. As the technology evolves, so 17,000 is over 20-plus years. It takes of, time so to get it, that. Well, it takes time, and also technology evolves. So first there was more manual labor. Later we became a little bit more sophisticated. Which actually links to our research as well, because we started the work uh, with Professor Steve Kaplan at the University of Chicago in in 2008 and earlier to really start to understand and decode CEO behavior. Mm -hmm. But not until recently, in the last uh, handful of years, when we partnered with analytics firms and and professors using some of the cutting-edge analytics Mm -hmm. where we could really dig into unstructured text when some of the really interesting findings came about. And so it's the balance between kind of good, rigorous regression analytics on the structured data 
and actually being able to look at the words these executives are saying and patterns in their behavior and uncover things that we never imagined. So as you were describing this and as I read it in the book, which, by the way, it is one of the most, I think, um, insightful and useful books I've read about advancing in business in the last five years. Oh, gosh, Laura, thank really. you. Really. And thank to those you. of you who are listening, I, I really encourage you to read it, whether or not you want to be a CEO or just grow as a leader. It's really accessible but insightful. Anyway, one of the things you talked about was those five-hour interviews. And I had the privilege of once sitting on a search on a um, search committee for a university president. So I mm-hmm. got to see inside that process. But I realized that most people don't. Um, As a search firm, when you're matching up a CEO with an organization, could you just help us understand a little bit of the process that's going on so we could understand what kind of stories get told in those five-hour interviews? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first thing is we're actually not a search firm, which is really, really important. Okay. So I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. That's actually quite right, and I'm glad you assumed that because everyone knows search firms, right? (laughs) And so our mission in the the selection decision, whether it's for a CEO role or for any leadership role, is actually be a completely objective party. Okay. And so we don't find the candidate. We are not the future employer. So we have absolutely no skin in the game other than actually helping make the right decision. That's really powerful. So we believe in separation of church and state and search and assessment, as we like to say. <laughs> and so, so what happens in those five hours is you get an absolutely unbelievable database on somebody's history of patterns of behaviors, roles they've gone in, how they've succeeded, how they've failed, how they made decisions about the next role, what results they produced, and then how how did they do that? And so So that's the foundation. You use that, the F word, failure. Ha. (laughs) Um, And so in these discussions, because obviously you're trying to probe and get the real story. Exactly. How candid are candidates? How candid should they be? How do you approach making a safe place to hear them? And what do you learn? Well, so it's a funny thing, right? We have a very unique process, right? Like our process is wired to, you know, get really substantive data. And the whole process is set up. And we even start out, I, you know, once award an MBA, always award an MBA, I like to say to the candidates, look, it's going to be kind of like a balance sheet. Like we're going to talk <laughs> right. about things on the left and things on the right. It's going to be great stuff and not so great stuff. You don't make and it so, two by two, do you? I don't. <laughs> I've recovered from my McKinsey days. And, okay. Um, <laughs> But, but the point is that we said they expect – so our process of interview is unusual, which is how we get 90% accuracy, right? So our clients will say that when we support their hiring process, number one, they believe that the results are but 90% predictive of which the outcome. Amazing. Which is crazy. Uh, really, really unusual. Uh, and also what we're starting to find, all the data on that is nascent, is that actually it benefits folks that normally would be disadvantaged by bias. Because the process forces the judgment around facts and data, and whereas in a regular, more casual process, even if the the casual process is dressed up in a lot of presumably structure, Mm -hmm. a lot of those biases, number one, go unrecognized, and number two, therefore rule the day. So, for example, here's one of the craziest things we found. Uh, We run the numbers to compare what are some of the behaviors, attributes, factors that seem to be statistically associated with likelihood of getting successful in the CEO job. And we ran the numbers on what seems to be predictive of actual decision to get hired. First of all, the crazy fact is there's only overlap of one variable between the two. You're kidding and me. And we can come back to that if you so like later. So how many but, people's lives, how many organizations, countries have been affected? Well, how crazy is that, right? So by that kind choose, of decision making. When we choose our leaders, things that lead us to choose someone to lead 
have only minor overlap with what it actually takes to be successful. So that's a little crazy. We see that, uh, you know, publicly in elections and things. For example. Right. Because we don't know how to make better decisions. Because it's really hard. Here's So I, I want to mention something because you prompted the thought and then I want to come back to this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you talked about biases, right? Some of those biases are spoken and those are actually um, less dangerous because once you put it on the table, you can be a little bit more aware of it People and you can, can have a dialogue it around collectively. it. Right. So one of the interesting numbers that popped up is foreign accent. So somebody who, and, you know, look, I didn't grow up in this country, so I feel for people with a foreign accent out there. Um, people who had a strong non-Anglis accent, foreign accent, in the U.S. selection process had a 12 times less likelihood of getting picked for the job. That is not something that gets talked about. That's not even something that decision makers recognize. How does it dress up? They're, they think they're doing the right thing for the company. To your earlier point, well, their communication skills need to be better. Their presence needs to be better. But when you look at the numbers, Accent had no relationship to performance. Zero. Right. Not in the top Fortune 10 company, not in a 10-people company. It just didn't, right? Other factors did. But the fact that it subconsciously affects our decisions and our data was able to reveal that then allows you to have a more rigorous and more fact-based dialogue. So within that dialogue, because I do want to go to this question of um, the things that have happened in our careers that we wish didn't happen. Yep. Yep. The F word. The F word. Yes. The things that to us yes. can feel like failure. Yes. And you also write at length in the book about, which is why I'm not, I don't want to call them failures. I want to start modeling a different hey, way of thinking about you've learned something. Them. See, we're already helping I you. I told you. We're already helping great. you. So talk to me about um, why you want to hear about them and what's the preconceived notion that people have about telling these stories that you think needs to change? Well, so first of all, in that area, make no mistake, when there's a dialogue among decision makers about somebody's fit for the role... The most dangerous person you can hire is the person who, in the interview process, says that they've never failed. Or the only thing that would be worse than that is somebody who actually has never failed. <laughs> because essentially they're untested, right? Because the reality is as you rise, rise through the ranks, one of the things we found, right, is, look, the only perfect leaders or CEOs out there are those you don't know well enough. <laughs> it's similar to the, something my grandmother said about a husband. <laughs> well, here you go. That's for sure. <laughs> You know, but it's true. It's like we can have an idealized notion of somebody that we're looking for, but it's very different when we have real people. And it's very dangerous, right? Because then the point where you started this conversation, right, where we all assume what's for us and what's not for us. We make decisions, complex, big decisions in our life, like, well, which role should I aspire to? Should I, do I see myself as a leader? Based on what feels like we can identify with. And nobody can identify with somebody who never fails. Yeah, right. that's what we try to convey, right? Right, because we, so, we, we like the illusion of perfect. And so to your point, so what do you do in the interview process? Here's an interesting thing we found, actually, is that people who spoke about their mistakes as failures, like using the F word, right, were only half as likely to be successful in the role as those who talked about their failures and their mistakes, but talked about them in a very matter-of-fact way. So it really is the F word. It really is. By the way, this, in the is, <laughs> <laughs> this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Elena Botello, co-author of a new book titled The CEO Next Door. If you'd like to join in the conversation, talk to us about your mistakes and how to make sure you frame them as mistakes and not failures. We'd really love to hear from you. Our phone number is 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And so, while your listeners are thinking about their mistakes, I'll offer another piece of bit of good news. Okay. 
because uh, it was started with a lot of downer facts, right? <laughs> right. Uh, which is when we analyze mistakes and executives who make mistakes, number one, every single one of the 17,000 executives, the one thing they all have in common is that they've all made mistakes. And they've all been consequential mistakes, not just kind of, oops, you know, I work too hard, right? Um, moreover, 45% of them had big, unmitigatingly huge, potentially career-blowing up blow-ups, right? So what's a blow-up? Oh, gee, I was a new CEO, and I made the wrong acquisition, and it cost our shareholders $200 million, right? Yeah, big screw-ups. So huge screw-ups. Here's the crazy thing. When we then looked at their track record, 78% of those folks who had screw-ups went on to become CEOs. And it actually didn't. So the, the fact of the failure itself had no discernible analytical relationship to their success in the role. But what did is how they dealt with those failures. So that's the critical piece. That's the thing to tweet out. It's not the fact of the failure. It's how you handle it. It's what you make of it. Absolutely. So as people are in interview processes and they need to talk about the mistakes that they've made, how do you, what are you looking for? Yeah. What should they keep in mind you want in the telling secret that sauce. story? Do you really want the secret sauce? <laughs> of course I You're want the secret sauce. You're making my life harder because then these folks will come and interview. So what sounds, kind of what's, what's, um, what's the right way to think about your mistakes? People who do that well are matter of fact. They talk about the mistakes as they are. They don't try to take blame or they don't seem to experience shame over it. Um, what they do do is, so one is... Ideally, they're making different mistakes throughout their career as opposed to making the same mistake over and over, which (laughs) you see a lot in interviews, frankly, where, well, in my first job, I did a really poor job managing expectations, but I I really learned from that. And so what happened in your second job? Well, you know, in my second job, I really did a bad job managing expectations, but I really learned. And so so ideally, you want to see somebody growing and actually evolving in the mistakes they make. As <laughs> I have a to running c- joke that I really just want to make new mistakes. So this is actually well, a kind of go. good thing exactly. to embrace. Exactly. And so that's called, we call that learning, right? <laughs> right? And also that there's another aspect of it, which is connects to your willingness to try things you haven't done before and which take a risk. One of your key four leadership behaviors, right, four CEO behaviors, which is ability to adapt. So I want to talk about that, especially in the context of women, because one of the things that we've learned about um, women, particularly when it comes to risk and seeing themselves in new roles, that there's kind of like a, a, a two-pronged problem there, which is that um, women, if they don't see themselves as 100% capable, often won't take that step. Yeah. And then there's a way that sometimes in very healthy ways, as we see in investment portfolios, women don't court risk to the same way and often can make more responsible decisions over time, as data has shown. What advice do you have for how we can think about the balance between these two things, particularly as we're aspiring for leadership roles? Yeah, what a great question, right? And I think for women, often the risk equation is much more complex because they've got, besides the job risk, they're always considering personal risk and the family risk often mm-hmm. that they're taking. Um, look, what I can tell you is when we study careers of those who've gotten to the top, and especially actually what we did is we double-clicked on sprinters, right? Folks that got to the top even faster. They and, do. and define a sprinter for us the way that you yeah, describe it. Yeah, so we book. looked at, so on average, it takes about 24 years for somebody from job one to the CEO suite. If you're in Fortune 500, it takes a little bit longer, but on average, 24 years. So we said, okay, well, let's take a look at people who got there faster than average. So that's, and we call them sprinters because they got there faster Yeah, and had a shorter run. <laughs> um, and so we found a couple of interesting things. Um, one of them is that 
the sprinters, 60% of the sprinters asked for opportunities. They proactively asked for opportunities. That's one. Second, what outside in, in hindsight, once they've made it to the Forbes list and the Wall Street Journal cover <laughs> right. page and all of that, looks like a completely unblemished, well-planned, meticulously executed career path, actually at a given point in time, was a set of risks that they took. And so when we think about career choices, what we've started to conclude is that actually the riskiest thing you can do is not to take risk professionally. Right. And going back to what you were saying a moment ago, that um, also the people who made it into those roles, all of them made mistakes. Exactly. All of them actually had good, juicy, big things that went wrong. Exactly. Exactly. Like, here, so, I mean, I think basically if you're listening to the show right now, you should assume that no matter how bad gut-wrenching you felt at any particular moment in time, there's a quote-unquote successful CEO out there who's probably done something dumber or been in a worse situation. <laughs> right. And we don't it's have to pretend to that it isn't gut-wrenching. It is. It's awful. It is really awful. Because one of the things that I also appreciated that you talked about in the book um, was the the emotional awareness that comes after you get the big job, the enormity of the responsibility, mm -hmm. and how everybody seems to feel that at some point. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if you embrace that responsibility in a way that feels appropriate to its scale, those kinds of failure, those kinds of mistakes, catching the word, <laughs> are going to hit really hard. They also can feel humiliating. In the moment, yeah. Yeah, exactly. so um, exactly. when things like that happen in the moment, because you, know, you were talking before about how we look back, and how we tell that story mm -hmm. and own it. Mm -hmm. In the moment, what patterns do you see that reflect? Because, you know, part of it is I'd like to say what advice. But I think what's really interesting is with the analytics, you have information on what the patterns are about behavior in what's the moment. In the data. Exactly. And so what does the data tell us about the people who make good decisions, have good reactions in that moment? Well, so first thing we can tell you is that while vast majority of our analysis is cuts across men and women, we're starting to see some evidence that women do experience that stress much deeper than men might and vocalize it a lot more than men might. However, and this is nascent. So this is you're getting a sneak preview on things that are still in the okay, works. I won't I won't raise it yet. up there as the gospel. Just right, yet. It's not okay. a gospel just yet, as opposed to everything else in the book. <laughs> um, but that actually their level of stress or their level of expressed stress doesn't have anything to do with the outcome. So women process they may be we may take it harder on ourselves. We may process it more vocally, therefore it makes it more obvious that to everyone else that we're floundering. But actually, if you just let this whole picture play out, the chances of success aren't impacted. In fact, we, we did find in the data is that confidence, right? So that could be another mm -hmm. kind of flip side of these gut-wrenching moments is the level of confidence. Confidence really helps you get hired into the role. It improves your odds of getting hired. has no impact on performance. That's really interesting. So it's really about perception at the time that decisions are being made. Exactly. So exactly. one of the things that I appreciate that I hear from our listeners is some of them are the people themselves we're trying to help advance in the workplace. Others yes. are the employers, yes. the partners. So if we have women in our world, the talented, like I have a staff full of the most exquisitely talented women. If I want to help them as they make their mistakes, um, it sounds like part of what I need to do is make room for them to experience that gut-wrenching humiliation in the moment 
and to expect them to process it in their own way, but not to use that as a barometer of how bad the mistake is or their ability to recover. Exactly. Exactly. Just because they're so vocally miserable doesn't actually, <laughs> shouldn't make you less less uh, comfortable that they'll mm-hmm. plow through it. And actually, your question about mistakes also brings me back to one of the behaviors we found to be particularly powerful and uh, is reliability. And then w- when we looked at organizations that build reliability into the business, right, where it's a matter of life or death, right, hospitals, for example, Children's Hospital right. Philadelphia, right, or nuclear submarines, so or, or the Navy SEALs. Organizations where reliability is not the matter of good leadership, it's literally a matter of survival. We found a fascinating thing. Part of their code of kind of part of their DNA code, part of the universal rules that they seem to follow is they celebrate mistakes. And so, for example, right here next door in Philadelphia, Madeline Bell uh, is a female CEO for the first time ever. Um, it was a 200 year institution. Um, leading pediatric hospital, Madeline came in. And one of the stories that she likes to tell is uh, they've, in, they've realized as they looked at patient safety, which is obviously really critical, um, they realized that people were afraid to call out mistakes. And so they instead what they did is they created a culture. They have this program called Great Catch, where mistakes were celebrated, where somebody who found a mistake was celebrated because you were able to prevent a bigger mistake from happening. Um, and so that's an example of how even institutionally mistakes build both better leaders and, frankly, make it for safer hospitals. And also how you can change culture to um, how through simple communication and simple and in small programs, you can start to change culture to um, make big improvements that are going to have huge impact. Exactly. Exactly. Um, by the way, um, if any of you would like to get some advice from this extraordinary resource who's here in the studio with me today, our phones are open and you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So going back to just a little bit on the mentorship of people when this is happening, because I feel like I, I've heard about this happening so many times that I, I, I don't want to lose the moment, that as we're watching the people on our staffs, in our communities, react to mistakes, it's not their emotional reactions. It's what they do to take action afterwards. So as a leader, Madeline made it very clear, I'm not going to punish you. It, don't hide it. Don't make it a secret. Actually, let's make it a teachable moment. Exactly. And I know that in the arts community, the mistakes are how you make new magical things happen. Exactly. So make stuff. Make as much stuff as you can. We're going to throw out 90% of it anyway. Exactly. Who knows what kind of gems are out there. Um, But making it so that we're not judging people on the emotional reaction. We're judging them on the action that puts... Helping them process. Process and put into effect changes that are going to fix the mistake and prevent it from happening again. Which is at the root, by the way, of the adaptability behavior that we found. And my favorite story about that is uh, about a uh, uh, NASA. I'm going to tell you what. Yeah, we are going to take a short break. Perfect. Can I want? Because I want to. I'm enjoying we'll this so much. We'll I want the whole that. story. Yes, exactly. And by the way, um, I'm talking with Elena Botello, the author of the CEO Next Door, and many other things that we'll talk about when we come back from our break. In the meantime, I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, our phones are open one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. And you can also write to us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. We'll see you shortly. Don't go away.
You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and I have the great pleasure today of being joined by the amazing Elena Botello, who is the co-author of the new book, The CEO Next Door, The Four Behaviors That Transform ordinary people into world-class leaders. Our phones are open if you'd like to get some advice, whether it's about how you prepare for your interview, live through your interview, or actually decide whether or not to take that big job, you can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And you can also email Patty, who's in the booth, and I love it when we get emails because she pops in and says hi as she shares them. And our email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So before the break, Elena, and welcome back. Thank you. Um, we were talking about um, what I, I'm now going to turn the F word, how we talk about our mistakes, how we handle them ourselves when they happen, and how we support the people who work with us and particularly for us when they happen. What advice would you give? What's the best thing that a leader can do in helping their team deal with mistakes? As with most things in life, the best thing the leader can do in this case is lead by example. You can talk about importance of mistakes all day long, but if as a leader you don't share your own mistakes and don't discuss your learnings from it, nobody else is going to do that either. It will be lip service. And so if you're listening to the show and, and you find yourself in the position of wanting to support women around you, talk about your own mistakes. Talk about your own learnings and how painful that was and how you prevailed. Right. So, or not. So, so it sounds like it's three key things. One is actually talk to it. Acknowledge that you've made mistakes. Exactly. That alone is powerful. And that the world didn't fall apart. Right. You woke up the next day. People exactly. still loved you. Exactly. And that, and then also to talk to acknowledge that you, it was also painful. That while there Indeed. was a mistake Indeed. and you recovered from it, Indeed. it wasn't easy so that you understand their emotional experience and then to honor their emotional experience however it emerges. And also to know that somebody may take a few minutes, somebody may take a few years to process a mistake. <laughs> right? Look, I, I have a couple that still show <laughs> right, up in the middle of the night right, every exactly, so often. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it can take a little while. And also, interestingly, um, I know that they also tap into things that have nothing to do with the magnitude of the mistake. It's almost like its own Rorschach test, but that's for another show. Indeed. So we know that that kind of... Um, Modeling is an important attribute of a good leader. But one of the things I found so interesting about the book and these essential, these four behaviors, is that you talk about attributes of leadership as they are behaviors. It's like they're traits. They're learnable. Yes. And also we use them in different ways and in different strengths. Can you explain some of this to us? Yeah, absolutely. So we were fascinated to find that the four behaviors that stood out as those being most strongly associated with performance, all of them, with most leaders, we see them as both learnable and learnable at any stage in your career. So, you know, today we coach CEOs on some of the same behaviors. At the same time, we have some folks that are coming out of their uh, college or even in school that are demonstrating mastery in some of these behaviors. And so one thing we noticed looking at these 2,600 leaders is nobody is excellent at all four. And... And everyone has in some domains of their life where they're successful at at least some of them. I found that to be one of the most... Kind of like yoga. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You're always learning. Right. But I found that to be one of the most comforting things in the whole book is 
removing the illusion of the the perfect CEO exactly. and that it also reinforced how powerful these traits are because if nobody possesses all of them, look what people accomplish with three of them. Exactly. Exactly. So what are these magical traits? Well, so we've found four things. And if you really want to remember them, we came up with this framework called DARE, right? Okay. DARE to be a great leader. I like um, it. D stands for decisiveness. A stands for adapt, being able to adapt. R stands for reliability, or we call it relentless reliability. Uh, and E stands for engage for impact. So those are the four behaviors that matter. So also maybe this was another Rorschach test. I dove into the deci- the decision one first. Uh-huh. And part of it also is there's a really interesting um, assessment that you have online. We do. We yes. do. So I got architecting was all over mine, which we could also maybe talk about another time. Anyway, um, the, well, and uh, I have a pop quiz for you, though, uh-uh. if you took an assessment online. Okay. So we have a very quick assessment that 11,000 people took online. Uh, people like Laura, thought leaders, CEOs, folks graduating from college, on these four behaviors where you had an opportunity to answer very simple questions and you get your score. Which of these behaviors do you think scored the lowest? Of? Of the four. So decisiveness, adaptability, relentless reliability, and engaging as important or ones we're likely to enact? The one where people are weakest. Because what basically what you get is you do the assessment online and it tells you where your right. strengths are and where you're not quite as good and you can work on. I'm so gonna if you say had to take a wild guess. Engaging for impact. Here's the wild thing. So of the four behaviors, the one that people are most likely to underestimate themselves in is adaptability. So people prove under stress inevitably way more adaptable than we think we would be. So I'm that's sort of one. not surprised. Just like we're a lot stronger than we think we Indeed. are. Um, but it's really dangerous to, because if you don't expect yourself to be as adaptable and resilient, you don't take the risks. Right. But then when you're under pressure, you do well, do better than you expected. On the flip side, the behavior where people habitually overestimate themselves is reliability. Okay. We, that was the single lowest rated behavior across 11,000 people. How crazy is that? That is crazy. And, and people, and these are, it's, just, it's coming from a group of people that probably describe themselves as super reliable. Well, you know, of all the four behaviors, we found surprises in every one of them. Reliability drove us completely crazy because it just sounds so pedestrian. <laughs> it's because when you talk, we're talking about CEOs here, right? right? Masters of the universe. You expected, I don't know, vision or, you know, something right. sexier than reliability. And so it took us some time to rally behind that one. It was so powerful in the data. And by the way, so this is the spoiler alert. It's actually, remember how I mentioned there's only one of these things that overlapped? So it helps you both get yes. hired. So reliability. So if you if you don't have time for any test and you said, okay, well, which of these behaviors is most important? Reliability is the one of the four behaviors that both doubles your chances of getting the job to begin with. So showing in a job entry that you're incredibly reliable doubles your chances of getting the job. And at the same time, actually, dramatically increases your chances of success. Succeeds at the It's a double whammy. That's amazing. By the way, can you tell my 15-year-old that? Indeed. Because she won't hear it coming from me. (laughs) Well, if you can tell my (laughs) 44-year-old that, I'll tell your 15-year-old. Fair enough. By the way, Vince is calling from West Virginia. Vince, thanks for listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind? Hi. uh, Well, thank you for taking my call. And just want to know there are men at work out here as well. So thanks for having the show. I think it's very uh, entertaining and educational. But... I was interested to hear both your opinions on when you have a team and you, and you manage a team and everybody has different personalities, but how much do you, emphasis do you put on, you know, we have personality matching uh, diagrams and scenarios, but do you generally apply 
same management and same duties to everybody or do you try to do it individually because you know we've you've got the different categories of personalities or you know if you're a type one type two those are primitive but more psychological testing is has got more detail so um Vince, that would be, i would be interested in how treating people's personality yeah what a great question so here's what we found in years of research we looked at we kind of look at everything starting from results right because i assume as you lead your team ultimately your goal is yes to have a good team that works well but ultimately deliver great results so we looked at teams that deliver great results and we found first and foremost they do three things they number one they get aligned on goals and objectives so they start with that Second, then they get people in the right roles that ensure that they meet these objectives. And then they work on their relationships. And, and they make sure that as they build the portfolio of, te- of team members, they start with who do we need in the role towards what we're trying to do as a team? And then how do we work together most effectively? So the personality profiling can be really, really helpful once you get to the how. What gets a little bit dangerous is sometimes it's really easy for us human nature is to pick for that personality, right? And so if you're starting, if the, the, the personality has to be kind of the third step in the process, and then it's really, really valuable and important. The danger is when you start with that as the first step. Yes, and I'd like to add something to that just from the land of people analytics, which is that, and Vince, it's a great question, and there are so many organizations that are looking to solve these problems, and they particularly look at personality assessments as a useful tool. But you should know that personality assessments are actually a huge business. Um, mm-hmm. It's a growing area of science, but there's a lot of assessments out there that don't have the same kind of science behind them as the kind of stuff that Elaine is talking about today. And that um, the way that we like to think about it at People Analytics, it's actually an area of research for us, is that there are personality assessments that can be developed that could be really powerful, but they also need to be administered well. And so I'd say be cautious there. And really, Elena's instructions about align on goals, look at skills and abilities, help the team work together. I, would, I wouldn't overemphasize the psychological assessments that are coming from an external source um, unless you know that they're really, really grounded in deep science and really well administered. Is that a fair caution? That's very fair. And, and they can be very, very helpful as a way to build the team. And once you know that you've got the right people with the right skill yes. sets to help you. Yep. Or make it a well-oiled machine. Yes, and also yeah. to give you a way to talk about your differences with each other. Exactly. They can be really, really useful. Exactly. So, Vince, thank you so much for calling. We're really delighted yep. that you're listening out there. Um, well, thank you. And I wanted a follow-up question. I mean, I have a, a team of sales people, and uh, so they're addressing these issues with customers, but uh, trying to get the same result out of one to different than how to get the results out of the, the other one. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you're trying to present the same uh, goal in the same presentation. Here's what you need to go do. But um, sometimes I wonder if it's just they're not – I need to adapt it to different people. Well, it sounds like what you're pointing to is that the way your guys are motivated is really different, right? And what, what we find is really helpful is actually – so part of a byproduct in our five-hour sit-down with folks is you get to know what – makes them tick really, really well. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if you want to spend four hours with every one of your salespeople, <laughs> but no. the more you can understand 
their history because if you ask somebody you know what motivates you we'll have some canned answer but if you actually dig into how they made their past decisions I bet you you'll figure out what makes them it's, tick and how to motivate them. It's a pretty good predictor of the yeah. future that way. Well, Vince, good yeah, luck with your team, idea. and thank, thank you so much for calling. And our phones are open, so if you'd also like to join the conversation, get some advice from Elena. Our number is one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So let's talk a little bit more about... Um, these attributes. And I want to talk particularly about the decision-making one. Because one of the things, um, you know, one of the lessons I'm learning in life is um, don't presume you understand something when you just read it for the first time or skim over it. Mm-hmm. And I thought when I was, you know, looking online, looking quickly, oh, you got to make make the fast decision. But what I thought was really interesting in the book was you talked about there are different types of decisions that need to get made in different ways. And the ability to know when and how to make the right decision is really the thing that is important here, not just a comfort with making a decision in 10 seconds or less. Exactly. Could you talk about those different types of decisions? Absolutely. Well, first, you alluding to a surprise we had. So we found in our research that decis- highly decisive CEOs are 12 times more likely to be high performers, right? So that's pretty significant. Who wouldn't want to be 12 times more likely to succeed, right? And so what we expected would come out is that they're better deciders, that they're smarter, they make better decisions, their decisions are more spot on. And I think, Laura, what you're alluding to is we were pretty shocked, as maybe you were as well, that what we found really makes the best CEOs stand out is their willingness to make decisions fast, is the actual act of decisiveness, right? Right. And so then when we dug underneath, what we realized is that they, they're they really good at this triage function that you're describing, right? Is figuring out, well, number one, which decisions should I even be making as a CEO? Right. Um, and so there's a, actually a great gel versus foam story in the book <laughs> that I'll spare you for the moment um, of, of Madeline again saying, well, actually, this is not a decision at my level. This needs to be made elsewhere. And so in that, do, by doing that, they kind of declutter their CEO decision inbox, if you will. And so step one is, which decisions are really CEO-level decisions versus should be made elsewhere? Which, by the way, if you're not a CEO but a night shift supervisor, is also a good idea, right? It really right. applies at every single level. Um, and then once you boil it down to decisions that you truly should be making at your level, uh, then it's thinking about how do you simplify complexity to what really, really matters. One of the things that you wrote about in the book that I appreciated because it made me think about how do I make decisions? And there are certain decisions that – um, I've learned over time. Um, I could fuss over, but actually, no. It, it, you can make a quick decision about something. And then there are others where I've also learned it's actually better to not make the decision at that moment. Like when, let's say, I stayed at work two hours late. I'm hungry. Yes. I haven't slept. Yes. And I'm anxious about yes. you know getting home to my daughter. That's probably not the right moment to yes. be making a decision. So yes. could you talk with us a little bit about what you saw about the factors around good decision? Making Well, it's so beautiful what you just said, because I think the one thing that we all forget, even the most successful leaders, is that ultimately our biggest muscle that produces results is our brain. Right. And we don't often realize that our brain, just like any other muscle, can be in a better condition to make a decision or in a worse condition to make a decision. So if you came to work, I don't know, with a um, muscle pain, maybe that's not a day you're going to run half marathon. Maybe you'll like save it for another day or recover somehow. And so we don't do that with our with our brain. And so right. what you descri- what you described is really wise for any leader right at any level is thinking about okay, what am I bringing into this decision process right now? And so I have very basic rules of thumb. Okay. Uh, because I often enter people's lives when they're trying to make really big decisions. 
that are really, really scary for them. Because as much as, you know, when you're entering for a job, it's a big, scary decision. The other person on the other side is also betting on you. It's true. Everybody is so invested in that decision. The stakes are so high, particularly when you're talking about a CEO, that there's a lot of stress for everyone. Exactly. And so I have my own very unofficial rules of thumb is I try not to, to do those things in the morning with my clients. When I know that something is a really tough decision, I try to do it in the morning. My worst time is mm-hmm. Thursday afternoon because people are really cranky. Friday afternoon is not bad for big picture thinking because people get already more relaxed and into weekend mode. But if there's something big going on, I really try to engage with my clients like Monday morning, Tuesday morning. Or right after they had some food. But it's hilarious. It sounds so simple, but actually making sure you're in a good condition to make that decision is really important. And also, um, it was an area, it was part of the book where you talked about the habits of CEOs that um, we have a tendency, I think, particularly when we're young and we think we're immortal. And when we're our ambition, I'm past that stage, but I'll try to remember. (laughs) Um, And when our ambition outstrips, are good judgment sometimes mm. where we can run ourselves ragged mm-hmm. and try and do everything. And I used to have this awful expression, I'll sleep when I'm dead, until I actually <laughs> ran myself into the ground, literally, yeah, yeah. and learned that if I don't sleep, mm-hmm. if I don't eat properly, mm-hmm. everything else doesn't work. Yeah, it, so yeah. how you, at any point in your life, learning that it's not just your mother's advice, that taking care of yourself is essential for taking care of other people, and that you found that CEOs, for the most part, had very good, reliable self-care habits. Or if they don't, they really pay the price on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what comes to mind on that is, it, it was really interesting. Um, you know, when sometimes a data point bumps into you over and over and over again, and you're thinking, this is just dumb. How could this be? And so um, smiling. <laughs> a lot of CEOs, when they recall their mistakes or their big ahas, shockingly, what they recall is a moment in their career when somebody told them, you've got to smile more, which sounds so idiotic, right? Um, and this should not be mistaken with the really insulting statement from a man at a bar, why don't you smile, honey? Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> not that. No, in that particular case, it's typically a male CEO, although females are no exception. It's a male CEO and it goes something like this. Yeah. And then Bob told me, you know, you're so dumb gruff when you walk around the office. We think we're going to start cutting costs again and laying off people. And so back to your point about as a leader, you have so particularly women and men. When we don't take care of ourselves, we assume often it's because we're trying to be reliable for other people. Right. That we've given away that time to to take care care of others. others. And what it actually turns out is that as a leader, unless you take care of yourself and you bring your kind of, you know, healthy face to work, right? You're failing others because others assume there are really bad things happening because you're really under stress. And it could be we have a conversation with Steve Kaufman, one of the CEO, former CEO of our electronic in the book where he says, yeah, you know, I might have had a bad back and they assume I'm selling the company. Right. And so you don't need to be again, you don't need to be CEO. You could be, you know, vice president of marketing, but your people, when they look at you walking down the hallway, will make conclusions and they will all assume, by the way, that you're about to fire them. Right. They take so it very personally. <laughs> it reinforces an interesting story I heard from Seagal Barsade. I'll tell you in one second. I just want to point out that this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Elena Botello, co-author of a new book titled The CEO Next Door. So um, one of the things Seagal explained, uh, it was a talk I heard her give, was about emotional intelligence mm-hmm. and where sometimes it can actually be too acute. And it was the story of somebody who was being interviewed. It was actually a study, but they were being um, interviewed for a position. And they read on the interviewer's face something negative. 
Uh And they calibrated their behavior to it, Mm -hmm. thinking it was in response Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. What was really going on was the interviewer remembered he forgot to buy milk. And he was going to, like, get in trouble at home and needed to figure out how he was going to get to the store. So he was having this private experience that had nothing to do with her. But she was reading all of his signals and reacting to them. And so it reinforces that, you know, we're all having these private experiences. But as a leader in particular, what we convey, even before we open our mouths, has a huge impact on other people. It's a safe assumption that if you lead anyone, whether it's your children or, you know, a team of two or a huge organization, you should always assume that when you're a person in power and the team under you, when uncertain, will make the most paranoid assumption. Yes. And so you just need, that's what, you know, why do we always tell leaders to communicate? Why do we always, it's, it's because of that. Right. right. Laura Liswood described it as the elephant and the mouse. Huh. And she said, you yeah. know, if the leader's the elephant, they can go anywhere they want. They, they don't have them. to be careful. Exactly. But the mouse has to be acutely tuned in <laughs> to where that elephant is exactly. to not lose its tail. And so you're right. Those little things of smiling when you come in a room and being positive will allay fear so that you can move forward and have the meaningful conversation. And needless to say, doing it in a genuine way, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, always. Um, so with the, let's go back to some of these other traits. Let's talk about adaptability. Because I think in particular, as you know, I'm thinking about our listeners out there, women um, in particular who may not have aspired for a CEO role, may have not put themselves in that position, and, but have done interesting work along the way. Um, how do you, what is the trait of adaptability? How do you develop it? Where to use it. Laura, may I first jump on your point about not aspiring to the CEO role? Yes. I think that's a really, really important data point. Um, so in our research, 70% of CEOs, 70% of sitting CEOs shared that actually they didn't have any goal to become a CEO. So until seven out the, of 10? Seven out of 10. So this is basically to say you don't, you may not think you want to be a CEO, that's fine, but you know, number one, these skills still apply, but also people in power today or people, CEOs that you see out there likely also didn't know they were quote unquote destined for the CEO suite. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the building on that now on the flip side is when somebody gets to the C-suite, all of a sudden you get studies showing that 87% of them want to become CEOs. And why is that? Well, what we find it's because that role all of a sudden becomes more accessible and you see that there you see their mistakes i mean we've had these conversations with ceos that we interviewed asking them so when did you realize you wanted to be ceo and inevitably the story goes something like this well you know i had this assignment i was still pretty junior but i had to work a lot with my current ceo and i actually realized they're not all that smart <laughs> or i started to kind of get this feeling that maybe like i could even do some things better than they could or well gee they're so successful and they're so smart but they also put their pants on one leg at a time. And so I think especially this is especially for women because we don't have a lot of role models out there right. in the CEO suite. And it's so easy to then translate and say it's not for me. Um, and what I think the, kind of what I'm really excited about from this research is that what we learn is that it's not about what you look like. And it's not about even knowing that like that person in your, your classmate who always jumps up to the board to draw the chart may or may not become the CEO. And so you don't need to know that you're destined for greatness. What you need to do is make good choices along the way 
and um, and develop these four behaviors, we believe. Yes. Okay. So we talked a little about Sorry, adrecising. I took you off track on adaptability. No, that's really great. To, and it's I had really to share important. because I think it's a big deal for women no, especially. And we've talked a lot before about, you know, if you don't see it, you can't be it. We need role models yes. out there. But in the absence of those role models... Um, there are one of the things that's wonderful about the book is it's sort of if you read it you could be it is start to learn that there are these. I att- have to quote you. I think I just got a twittable. <laughs> <laughs> that there are these attributes that you can develop and to realize that um, whether it's that you get close enough to see it so you can envision yourself in that role, or it's that as we see with a lot of women who go into not for profit work, who are volunteering, who go into social impact work, there's a real drive to make a difference. Yes. To make an impact, to yes. change something. Yes. And that really one of the most powerful ways you can change something is to emerge into a leadership position. Yes. And to not shy away from it because you don't think you have these traits. Yes. Well, and actually, so I have a very specific advice for leaders who manage women in that okay. regard is that some of the early preliminary research is showing that actually for women, especially important. They have an easier job often stepping up to a leadership position because they're needed and because the organization, quote unquote, can do without them in that role, as opposed to because they have an ambition to get there. This is not by any stretch of imagination one size fits all. There are plenty of super ambitious women out there, but it's emerging some of the emerging hypotheses out there. So if you're a leader and you're trying to help women, it's back to what is the purpose of your organization and how that person, can, how, how can that individual? support that purpose. And and being driven by um, making a difference, as opportunities said. to make a difference exactly. and opportunities to get work done well exactly. rather than focusing on ambition. Because otherwise it's too scary. <laughs> so what's not scary at all is reading more about what you're doing. If people want to find the book, take the assessment, how can they find you? You can check out ceonextdoorbook.com. It's a mouthful. Yes, yeah, so ceonextdoor.com. CEO next door book. book. Com. Okay. Or you can and just you, check it out on Amazon. Right. And also, the CEO genome study is fascinating. So, Elena, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure, Laura. Thank you. The time just flew by. Um, and thank you, all of all of you, for joining us. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111 and me at Laura Zarrow. A special thank you to my guest today, Elena Botello. And I'd lo- also like to thank my marvelous producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, and our fantastic sound engineer, Tatiana Zamis. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 